0: Sarah Aziza
1: has reported on Saudi Arabia for years. She grew up there. So I've been I'm in the Middle East multiple times a year pretty much since I was a child, very very young. So
0: when the story of Rahaf Mohammed, that Saudi teenager who left her family and took to Twitter
1: to seek asylum, began spreading around the internet this month, I went in instantly Um, to my laptop and started following the story, following the retweets, um, checking out the videos. I speak Arabic, so some of the tweets and videos were being translated, but I was able to follow like Arabic Twitter as well. What was significant about speaking Arabic was being able to understand her her pleas, um, like in real time, it was very heart-wrenching. She was saying, you know, please send me back, I'm fearing for my life, I could be killed if I go back. She had never really shown her face or used her real name before that. And that's um, extremely common. And if people are daring to tweet at this point anymore from inside Saudi Arabia, they're extremely careful to screen their identities. But she she took to Twitter and said, I'm showing my face, I'm using my real name. She was showing pictures of her ID and things like that, saying, I have nothing to lose now, because she felt like her life was at stake. So she just exposed herself completely.
0: But you say this is an example of something bigger, right? When mm-hmm. you saw this, you weren't just seeing her. No. You were seeing, like, a lot of women who came before her, right? And yeah. are still continuing to come.
1: I knew stories like Dina Ali Laslum, who had a very similar story in the Philippines just a year ago, where she was apprehended, went online, like begged the international community to do something, and there wasn't a response, and she was repatriated, and we don't really know where she is today. Um, so I was, I was not sure how the story would go.
0: Of course, Rahaf was granted asylum in Canada. She got off the plane, went through customs, and then she got a big hug from Canada's foreign minister. But Sarah wants us to look at these other women, women who might not be as lucky. Because in the last few years, the number of Saudi citizens seeking asylum has risen dramatically.
1: Yeah, so even just the official numbers tell a story. It's, I think, close to tripled. It really speaks to the reality that women face, that they're they're willing to take such incredible risks. I spoke to some women who told me, you know, they're in their mid or late 20s, and they had never left the house without the permission or company of their, their male guardian. And yet these women are daring to sneak downstairs, steal their father's phones, and um, use their phones. There's a app that Saudi men use to, you know, register their women. Basically, it's called Abshir. And, um that's, that's
0: so bananas, by the way. Yeah. There's like an app for that.
1: There's an app for the interior ministry. And through that, women can, if they can get into their father's account, they can grant themselves permission to travel, one woman said, you know, her father kept her passport in a safe. She had to break into the safe. She had to, basically she described to me holding onto her father's phone and shaking so hard. She she was weeping and shaking as she told me. This memory took her three tries to even dare to open the phone cuz just the concept of disobeying her father was so terrifying. She she had like been frozen.
0: Saudi Arabian women have been dealing with so-called guardianship laws for decades. These policies prevent a woman from doing much of anything without the explicit permission of her father, her husband, even an adult son. Sarah's going to explain why there's been this sudden surge in women leaving the kingdom and whether Rahaf Mohammed's escape is going to change anything for the women left behind. This episode is brought to you by Discover. Sarah Aziza describes covering Saudi Arabia as a kind of ho-hum
1: beat. You know, we buy their oil, we sell them arms. They're bad at human rights. They're terrible at women's rights. They're great at women's oppression.
0: All these things are still true. But she says a few years back, her beat started getting a little more interesting because of one person. Mohammed bin Salman, the crown Mm -hmm. prince. Yeah how did things change when he came to power mm-hmm. because he presented himself to the west as being a great supporter of women's rights mm-hmm. and allowing women to drive and opening movie theaters and so how did things change in a way that you think is part of the cause of this uptick in people leaving the country
1: yeah i mean there was a big burst of of enthusiasm and optimism especially in 2016 when he rolled out this grand agenda he calls vision 2030 which has all these ambitious goals about how he wants to change and reform and improve the country by the year 2030, increasing women's employment. It's it's very um, capitalistic in its in its real aims. He talks about wanting to make Saudi Arabia a destination for global capital, and he understands that the image of Saudi Arabia you know, it's very um, marred by its human rights record and its um, reputation as being the only country that doesn't let women drive or a place where women are oppressed. So he understood that it would do him well to clean that up. So he's definitely touted, you know, these movie theaters (laughs) or letting women attend a soccer game. And um, I spoke to women in Saudi Arabia who are huge soccer fans, and that was a great moment for them. Um, And some of them were really excited to drive. And um, they come from you know a socioeconomic class where they do have access to a car and that is going to significantly impact their life. But there are many, many women who would tell me that their lives haven't changed. Well, you, you go regularly yeah. to Saudi Arabia. So I'm wondering how you've seen it change mm-hmm. personally. Yeah. I was there this summer watching women take the wheel for the first time in history and, and some of them praised. They were s- literally singing the praises of MBS. They were so excited. And Some of that could be sincere and some of that might be to make them feel safer. (laughs) It tends to be an addendum on every conversation people like to throw in. Oh, you know, like praising MBS. I think a lot of it might just be this attitude of paranoia because at the same time as all of these reforms or promised reforms, MBS was locking up hundreds of Saudis um, in a way that was pretty unprecedented and pretty brazen in the kingdom. So he locked up a bunch of very conservative clerics, for example, um, influential sheikhs and things like that. At the same time, he locked up liberals, intellectuals, academics. What we believe, people who follow this, is he was preemptively um, locking them up because he's very, very consumed with controlling the narrative completely. So on all ends of the spectrum and in the middle, people were going to jail. Um, It was very unclear in some cases why, except that he was afraid they might criticize him. So... Even people I know who were adamantly praising MBS and excited to hopefully see further reforms. Some of them went to jail. Some of them have completely evacuated Twitter and are completely laying low, even after 40 years of activism. Mm -hmm. People in very prominent families, people who were absolutely pro-government, but just hoping to cooperate with their government in ushering in these changes that they were so excited to hear announced from, you know, the royal court. Turns out he's not interested in having cooperation. He's not interested in, in anyone who would complicate or criticize his narrative.
0: So it just sounds like sociopathic. It is. It's very I mean, authoritarian. Yeah. Where it's just the end point is the power. You went to Germany and followed a woman named Rana. Mm-hmm.
1: Can you tell me her story? Sure. Um, So she's this incredibly bright, kind, smart woman who is from Riyadh. She's the oldest of eight children. And uh, she grew up in a really suppressive, like abusive home, her father. And at times her mother were, yeah, just very physically and mostly verbally and emotionally abusive. Mostly her father undermined all of her attempts to pursue her, her career and then told her that they'd found her husband. And it would, that was sort of, um, speaking to the personal, like her last straw, she said, I saw him, I saw the end of my future. I, I thought maybe I would be lucky and he'd be a liberal man, but he just told me he wanted me to start having kids and stay at home with them as soon as we got married. So she convinced her fiancé to take her on a honeymoon, and she began researching where, um, where the best asylum laws were, you know, sort of through these underground like forums of women who ran away or wanted to run away, and she heard Germany was a really good place. They flew to Germany, and when they landed in the airport to begin their honeymoon, she stepped up to the immigration officer with a handwritten note in English and German that said, I want to apply for asylum, and my husband doesn't know, and they took her into the system, and yeah, she began the process of becoming a refugee in Germany, and that's how she got her start.
0: And you describe how she really
1: lives her life in fear Mm -hmm. she feels like people are following her all the time Mm -hmm. it's not something that she expected even with all her research it seems like something that's getting much more common much more recently but she and several other saudi women that i met who are her friends they started getting messages harassing messages from pro-government people Um, her family her friends back home were interrogated and harassed by um, the authorities, um, multiple different t- departments. <laughs> and in some cases, they've, they've been followed personally, um, confronted by men, not preventing any, pre- presenting any government ID or anything, but speaking Saudi Arabic to them, showing up at their doorstep saying, we know who you are, we know where you live, and you're going to be sorry. And then another thing that's very common and very chilling in light of Jamal Khashoggi's tragedy is that many women get summoned to the embassy, for vague reasons.
0: Sarah says Saudi Arabian embassies, they've become these black boxes. Once you get inside, you're on Saudi soil. Might not be able to leave. And she knew this even before Jamal Khashoggi disappeared when he entered a
1: consulate in Turkey last fall. When I heard that he had gone into the embassy, I was um, really stunned and nervous. Because I had, at that point, spoken to so many Saudi expats who had experiences with the Saudi government trying to lure them into the embassy. And unanimously, they all knew not to go. You know, it was very ominous. And I was panicking. I was like, that was a really bad idea.
0: The Saudi government summoned Rana to the embassy by using her friends back home as leverage. She'd started a small business with them. The government froze their assets, said, we're going to keep your friends' stuff until you show up. So she went. She had her roommate stand outside to wait for her, the same way Jamal Khashoggi had his fiancee stand outside waiting for him. She waited for hours.
1: Then she was interrogated, insulted. They didn't want to speak to her about her business associates or her bank account in Saudi Arabia, which is was why the, she was there. Why, presumably, she had been summoned. Um, they just kind of laid into her right from the get-go, saying that she was she hadn't suffered in Saudi Arabia. She was just trying to get. Back at her family for something, and um, she told me I realized two things: they weren't going to help me, and I better shut up about human rights, and I better get out of there as soon as I could. So she just started to be very acquiescent. She was, she would say, I, "I'll think about it, okay."
0: When Rana heard what had happened with Jamal Khashoggi, what was her reaction?
1: Just like all the women I spoke to, they're deeply shaken, and um, they they all told me, you know. They feel like there's nothing that he won't do. And it's not just that there are no boundaries for him, but no physical boundaries, no geographical boundaries. For MBS. For MBS, right. That, you know, he killed this very well-known, respected older gentleman on foreign soil. So they feel a lot more vulnerable as young, anonymous women. Most of them have been completely cut off by their families. So they just feel like they're living in a world where there are no guarantees. There's no protection for them. And... They they have this incredible courage and this incredible desire for life. So through all of that fear, they're still attempting to learn German. They're still attempting to start a new life. Some of them are trying to date or get work or just really just live a normal life because that is why they risked everything after all is to have a real life. But they have to do it under this cloud of knowing um, we're probably being watched. Um, those of them who wanted to engage in activism, a lot of them were excited to get outside of Saudi Arabia, they could start at least tweeting about women's rights, have, like, shut down their Twitter. They they don't go any, near anything political. They're trying to keep their heads down and just carry on. Um, so that's a partial victory for MBS. That's really tragic.
0: Yeah, I mean... I think for a lot of people, they wonder, well, what are the consequences? And what came through to me from your reporting was how real the consequences could be. Mm-hmm. One of the women you followed, mm-hmm. Lena, mm-hmm. went to a hearing in Germany where mm-hmm. she was denied asylum. And the judge told her like, mm-hmm. oh, but it's fine in Saudi Arabia now. Mm-hmm. You should go back. And exactly. it just struck me that not having this on the record Mm -hmm. that this is what we believe is going on Mm -hmm. has real consequences that trickle down to some of the most vulnerable people
1: absolutely yeah and some people are still um, adhering to that line that all they know is women couldn't drive and now they can and vaguely these ideas of reforms
0: it's interesting because you mentioned how this has gone on for years like we've known their human rights abuses we've known how saudi arabia treats women for a long time And I do feel like there's this sense that like that's just the way things are Mm -hmm. and Mm. that they won't change Mm. and a sort of acceptance of it. And I wonder if you would tell a story about Saudi women from your time there that you think would surprise us Mm. or sort of give some nuance to that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm glad you asked because I do think it's important. We've spent most of our time sort of dwelling on the ugliest and worst, but a lot of women do find their lives better. I did a piece for Harper's uh, about a year and a half ago about the underground um, fitness community of women, and this was pre-MBS reforms and things like that, but women – Um, at the time, women's gyms were actually illegal. Um, And so there's this great network of women who had opened these sort of covert gyms in their basements, or posing as salons or spas or things like that. But on the inside, they're actually teaching kickboxing or Zumba or things like that. So there's these incredible, um, very excited and vibrant um, women who have been finding ways around the restrictions to pursue their passions, start businesses. One thing that that is a positive for them under MBS is he's, he's, he's made uh, entrepreneurship a lot more viable in Saudi Arabia in recent years because, as I said, he's very driven by capitalistic kind of concerns. So there are a lot of up-and-commerce, there's a lot of uh, women who are actually telling me, I'm really excited and proud to be Saudi for the first time. This was pre-Jamal Khashoggi. They come from families and socioeconomic backgrounds that are privileged, but um, there's, a, there's a complex picture
0: Sarah's been back to Saudi Arabia dozens of times since she was a kid. I asked her if it's weird to get off a plane and suddenly be there, where a woman's told she's inferior, where there isn't a constitution, but there are laws giving your father complete control over your movement.
1: No, because I, I grew up there. Like, I feel a personal stake in what's happening in that country. It makes me sad because I've always thought it could be so much more than it is, and... um I would love to have hope for it.
0: Sarah, thank you so much for coming in.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been great.
0: You can find Sarah Aziza's latest reporting in The New Yorker. One last rabbit hole I jumped down today. Later this morning, you're going to learn who's getting nominated for an Oscar this year. But here's my question. Why don't we have a host?
2: The Oscars has been having a rough couple of months.
0: And usually I'm just talking to myself about this stuff, but today I decided to talk to our producer, Danielle.
2: Yeah, so Kevin Hart was originally supposed to host the Oscars this year, and uh, that did not pan out. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay, for people who don't remember, what happened? Um, he had been found to have tweeted some homophobic tweets. It's 10 years old. This is stuff I've addressed. I've, I've apologized for it. I'm not going to it any mind. So then he's just out. He's not doing it anymore. And by now you would think they would have a new host slated, um, but that's that's not the case. they there no one's hosting the Oscars. So has this happened before? Yeah. So in 1989 it happened. Yeah, there was no host and it was like a mess. Like it's like went down and and be like Julie Andrews and a bunch of other act actors wrote to the Academy and was like this is an embarrassment. No, like, they yeah. wrote them a letter. Yeah, it was it was rough.
0: It does kind of seem like the worst job. Why are the Oscars? just like so much less fun than like the Golden Globes.
2: The Oscars are a little more self-serious and also the Golden Globes is like, has this like reputation for being the fun one where it's like everyone's like talking and eating throughout the entire show like people are getting drunk but it's like funny and like you can't you can just like throw tina fey and amy poehler up there to make like weird jokes and it's fine because that's like their reputation
0: so the oscars are like your dad's awards show
2: yeah it ranges from like bland to bad with some good moments like the ellen selfie like that's a huge pop cultural moment it happened at the oscars but like i feel like people don't come away from an oscars hosting being like that was exceptional You
0: know who I think that they should hire? I think they should hire Michelle Wolf.
2: Yeah. They'll never do it.
0: (laughs) But I I feel like it's like they need that. They need someone who's like, I would watch that. I would watch that a thousand percent. I think most of America would. You would hate watch it. You would love watch it. You would watch it just Just
2: to to watch it. it. Yeah. 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 But I mean, now at this point that we don't have a host, I think... It's going to be interesting either way. Like either they're going to like really pull it off and it could be like interesting or the other way around. It could be horrible, which is also a very fun time to watch. So we'll see.
0: What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris. And today I'd like to thank my producers, Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and the best producer in a supporting role. It goes to Danielle Hewitt. If you're enjoying What Next, leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Mary's Desk. Talk to you tomorrow.
2: This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines.